0: On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Paul D. Miller. About just war theories and what all that exactly entails. So, what counts as a war? What theories of just war are there? What are the competing positions on this? Are there how do pacifists approach war? How do people who say anything goes war? Uh, how do they justify their own opinions? And what all theological reasons are there for each position? Uh, who's arguing what? And some costs and benefits related to having a just war theory and all the different nuances that go into that. I think Dr. Miller uniquely suited to talk about this topic, not only because he has a book with Cambridge University Press coming out soon, but also because of all his own personal experience, his own personal studies. So I think this episode is really clarifying and helping me a lot, and I think you're really going to enjoy it and learn a lot from it. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today we are really looking forward to talking to uh, our guest, Dr. Paul Miller, on the topic of just war theory. So this is a topic that I think is really fascinating. And I do think, at least in Christian circles that I've seen, pacifism and a disagreeance with just war theory has been on the rise. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Miller on understanding just what exactly a, a just war theory means, what it, what it constitutes. Um, and and all those types of things. And what's really cool is he's coming out with a book I know coming out uh, here soon uh, that I'll let him talk about that is on this topic. So I think he's uniquely authoritative on this matter, and will be really helpful. So before I give everything away on him, I'll let him introduce himself to to you guys. Uh, If you're not familiar um, with him, Dr. Miller, why don't you give us a brief introduction on who you are, and then why you are uniquely suited to talk about this topic?
2: Uh, Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Brandon, for inviting me on the show. I appreciate it. And thanks to the listeners who are giving us your time. Um, So yeah, my name is Paul Miller. I'm a professor uh, in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University. I'm a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And I'm a member at Franconia Baptist Church down here in Franconia, um, Springfield, uh, Virginia. Uh, So um, I wrote this book. It's coming out from Cambridge University Press, probably late this year, early next year, uh, entitled Just War and Ordered Liberty. It's my effort to answer the questions, when is war just and what does justice require? And I wrote this book for a lot of reasons. Um, I served in the United States Army 20 years ago. I was a, I'm a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. And then I actually spent another 10 years working on the war as a civilian. Uh, I served in the CIA and then I served in the White House on the National Security Council staff, again, working on Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I spent quite a long time just thinking about uh, war and intervention Uh, military force, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, humanitarian intervention, post-conflict reconstruction. And then I did my my PhD and now I teach about this stuff. So I've been turning this over my head for about 20 years. And this book coming out is the fruit of, of 20 years of both scholarship and practical experience on these issues.
0: That's awesome.
1: It is. So I guess we'll just jump right in. Um, before we can define what just war is, maybe we need to define what the parameters of, of what is considered a war. So we maybe start out with what counts as a war and then give us you know some different theories on, on whether or not war is ever morally permissible and then you know maybe we can go into further detail from there on, on what is morally permissible yeah. and when.
2: Well, so I um, the, you know, when we talk about just war, the the kind of the framework of it really does not simply cover war. Uh, some people have tried to relabel it and call it just force. Because the the theological paradigm of just war really talks about when is political violence justified. And that political violence can be done by a government in times of war. It can also be done by non-state actors, insurgents and rebels in times of of civil war. I think you can even sort of stretch the framework to cover other lethal uses of force like execution, the, the death penalty. Can the state uh, kill its own citizens as punishment for crime? I think the Just War framework can kind of cover that as well. So it covers the full range of political violence, the use of force by, <clears throat> by actors, not, not for private gain. So it doesn't cover criminality, uh, but it does cover this uh, political use of force. Now, what are the other ways of thinking about this? Just War really stands uh, in the middle uh, it's the mean between two extremes. On the one end is pacifism, which says that uh, no use of force is ever justified, that we should not, cannot, shall not ever um, kill another human being or deliberately harm another human being. And uh, there is a long minority tradition of Christian pacifism. I do say minority tradition. I don't think it's the majority one, but there is a long and, and uh, you know respectable tradition of Christian pacifism. On the other side, the other extreme is, I'd call it realism. The realism Uh, argues that um, the use of force really needs no justification other than the needs of the state. This is a view that arose largely in the 17th century. It's a reaction to the wars of religion. You can find it in in the writings of Thomas Hobbes and um, Samuel Pufendorf and others. Uh, And we can talk about that more a bit later. But just war is really a a rejection of that. it says that actually uh, violence does require justification, careful justification, but in distinction to the pacifists, just war thinkers also say such justification is possible in some conditions under some conditions and so that just war is a distinct uh, from both pacifism and realism
0: so you, you mentioned there's I guess a long tradition even if it is minority of Christian pacifists so I guess can I can you help me understand what are their are their arguments against war versus what the arguments are
2: for justifications for it? Yeah. So the, um, argument for Christian pacifism, you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a strong argument. You know, it starts with the idea that we're all made in God's image that, and we shouldn't, you know, we, we have sacred dignity, um, and we should not needlessly violate that. Uh, they will sometimes invoke the 10 commandments, thou shalt not kill, um, let me just go ahead and offer my counter argument. That's not what the 10 commandments actually say they actually say "Thou shalt not murder. There is a different Hebrew word for kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the 10 commandments I think don't apply to conditions of warfare, but the Christian pacifists will invoke that. And then they'll talk about, uh, you know, Jesus's sayings, you know, turn the other cheek, um, love your enemy. How could you love your enemy by killing them? Uh, do not resist the evil doer Jesus said. And, uh, so pacifists will rely on those kinds of arguments to say that, as a general rule, Christians should not engage in killing or coercion. Now, do you want me to go ahead and argue against that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go <Please> ahead. <laughs> so, I would turn to Romans thirteen uh, and and Genesis nine. You know, Genesis nine, right after the flood, God commissions Noah and Noah's descendants. Uh, he kind of renews the um, the covenant with Adam uh, to steward all of creation, but he also says something very distinct. He says. Um, uh, those who shed the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And it is a way of commissioning mankind to carry out the, the writ to keep order in the world. You know, those who shed the blood of man, that was the big problem in the pre-Noaic days. Uh, how will we keep them in check? We will keep them in check by uh, uh, by, by the by the sword, right, by other people. God does not reserve to himself exclusively uh, the prerogative to keep order. He actually delegates it to humanity there in Genesis 9. We see it more clearly in Romans 13, uh, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. Uh, those that have existed have been instituted by God. Um, a bit further on, uh, uh, the, the ruler is God's servant for your good, uh, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. I think it's very telling that um, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, bearing the sword in vain. That's a very violent image. And it's not a metaphor. It's quite literal. Uh, governments bear swords and now guns and nuclear weapons. And God has allowed that. He's ordained it. He's said that this is how it is. Uh, and he has actually blessed us with the instrument of government to keep order in this fallen world. And I can go into further about how Augustine interpreted this and applied it. Um, it's a blessing to us that we have an instrument to keep in check man's humanity's natural sinful inclination so that we can live our lives and spread the gospel and glorify God through the work of our hands. So
1: not to oversimplify this too much, but, you know, in your estimation, if you had to put together a checklist of, you know, we've got to check these boxes. If this is going to be considered a just war, um, what are maybe some principles that we need to make sure we have in place? Uh, if, if this, if a particular war is going to be considered just.
2: Yeah. So you're asking about the standard just war framework before I uh, dive into that. Um, I should feel like I ought to add a little bit to my last answer, because, uh, I did mention that the pacifists invoke Jesus's sayings about not resisting Mm -hmm. the evil doer. And I just want to add that, um, Just war thinkers will usually say that those are essentially uh, applicable to individuals, but not to governments, right? There's a difference between individual ethics and political ethics. Not that rulers can get away with things that are naturally sinful. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying that Jesus was not giving a a political theory there. Uh, He's telling us how we ought to live our, our lives individually at the same time in the same Bible that Jesus also inspired, uh, he also said the rulers bear the sword, right? So you in- use scripture to ins- interpret scripture. We understand that God, this is not contradicting himself. He's saying that we private citizens ought not to wage war on our own uh, prerogative, but we ought to defer to the authorities when they deem it to be necessary uh, to do so for our protection and our benefit. All right. So I just wanted to kind of mm-hmm. round out yeah, that. Thank out. you. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, So when is a just war and what are the kind of criteria for just war? If you've ever heard of just war, uh, you know, if you took a college philosophy class, you've probably heard of the checklist, as Brandon, you said, that you ought to have just cause and right authority and and, um, use proper discrimination and proportionality. You know, in the book I wrote, I actually don't use those categories a whole lot Mm -hmm. because I find that it tends to simplify what just war is about. And it tends to result in a kind of a shallow way of thinking about the justice of a war. Uh, they're not bad categories, and by the way, most of them were invented by Thomas Aquinas, and then they added categories later on in the uh, scholastic period, leading up to the early modern era. And that's my book kind of traces some of that history. Um, but that you know, the, when if you look at that checklist, it really begs the question: What is justice? Because if you tell me, "Oh, you need a just cause," my next question is, "What's a just cause?" And if you read the history of just war thinking, there's really not not a clear consensus. Um, Thinkers have put forward an alarming diversity of reasons uh, or or possible just causes. Uh, Of course, self-defense, right? Nobody disagrees that self-defense is a just cause for war. If somebody attacks you or invades your country, you can resist. Like when when Germany rolls into Poland in September of 1939, the Poles have a right to resist. Uh, Nobody disagrees about that. Beyond that, thinkers have proposed a very wide array of other possible just causes. Uh, in the early modern era, they even suggested like, the denial of free travel and free trade could be a just cause of war, uh, and if the denial of the right of proselytization. Right? If you send missionaries to unreached peoples in the Amazon and they resist with violence, you can fight a war against them. Right? I don't think I agree with that, but I just want to you to be aware that thinkers have argued those sorts of things. There's a wide range of answers. So I kind of read all this stuff and I tried to boil it down and think of what the answer ought to be for us. What I observed is that Augustine, who's often called, uh, not fully accurately, the founder of just war, he said um, that war is uh, the right response by the state to safeguard the common good, uh, the, the, the body politic. He had a particular phrase for it. He said it was the tranquility of order, the tranquilitas ordinis. Right? Uh, it's both justice and peace. The conditions of when Abraham Lincoln said uh, the just and lasting peace among nations, I think that's kind of what I think of when I read Augustine talk about the tranquility of order. And so Augustine said, war is rightly the instrument to defend the tranquility of order or just and peace order uh, when it is threatened sort of violently by others. Translate that to today what does that mean for sort of 21st century pluralistic democratic societies? We're not, we're not theocrats. We can't just sort of apply Augustine's argument, uh, univocally. I think it means that, um, you know, war is the right instrument for defending what I'll say, what I'll call ordered liberty, right? Uh, the ordered liberty is the best approximation for justice we have in this world. Uh, you know, and I don't, I don't mean that quite to mean, you know, liberal democracy, although I do like the liberal democracy, I mean, ordered liberty, the principles, the ideas of both order and liberty. Because that is the closest approximation to justice we have in this world. And so when ordered liberty is threatened at home or abroad, sovereigns may use lethal violence to defend, uphold, and vindicate ordered liberty in and through warfare. Uh, that's all, I just said a lot, so let me unpack that. Yeah. Uh, because when I say in and through warfare, I also mean after warfare uh, wars must result in better conditions of justice and peace than what held beforehand. So that means you cannot invade a country, overthrow a government and walk away. That's unjust. Mm -hmm. Even if the government you overthrow is itself unjust, you have an obligation to stay and build something better in the aftermath. Otherwise your own action is is itself unjust. Mm -hmm. Does that, does that make sense? Maybe I should pause there and allow you guys to get No, It
1: makes sense. So you're saying that, that you don't need to leave behind a, a worse situation than you found. So if you just tear everything down and then you don't do any rebuilding, you haven't actually made things better than what yeah. they were. So, in, right. Is that 20, what you're saying?
2: That's exactly right. In, in 2011, um, Muammar Gaddafi, the dictator of Libya, was marching on the city of Benghazi. And he was announcing very clearly his intent to massacre civilians, to raise the city to the ground. It was a terrible, atrocious thing that he was threatening to do. So uh, President Obama, along with NATO, our NATO allies, decided to intervene and stop him from doing that. That right there, I think, was okay. I think that is morally permissible to intervene and stop a human rights uh, uh, genocide, right? But then what happened? We overthrew his government and the rebels executed Gaddafi. And then we left. We did not stay and do anything. We did not help rebuild Libya. And today, 10 years later, nine years later, Libya is a failed state. It is a terrorist safe haven it's been in, in civil war for the past nine years. so I look at our intervention in Libya and I say that was unjust, not the initiating cause because we had a morally permissible reason to intervene and overthrow their government, but in our decision to walk away afterwards and what's happened for the last nine years, wildly unjust.
1: I think that's a really important point too because I think it it seems like it would be easy to think about just war in terms of just that first initial step, like oh, we were just in entering into this conflict, but then it's almost like those principles get left behind. And then whatever happens after that, maybe we're, we're playing under a different set of rules. So I do think that's important that you bring up that point about what's done you know, during the war and in the, the days and months and years after. Yeah,
2: so, that's exactly. And that's, that's kind of why I try to shy away from the categories or the checklist. Yeah. Because the checklist often is a debate about the initiation of a war. And so much of the just war conversation focuses on the decision to initiate a war. That's an important conversation, but it's not the only one. Quite a lot of warfare, the questions of warfare and the morality of it are what you do in war and after war. And I want to kind of stress the importance of working for justice in and through warfare.
1: Something I wanted to ask you that just kind of popped in my mind, and this wasn't something we discussed earlier. So if you want to punt this question, feel free. But how does technology is changing so much? um, And uh, specifically, I'm thinking about things like drones and, and all that how does that complicate the way we think about uh, just war theory? Like, I mean, of what even counts as war? What counts as I mean, it seems like things happen so much faster. And um, I, I just I'm trying to think through how how things like that. How do we think through just war when it comes through, uh, to like rapidly changing, you know, technological advances when it comes to warfare?
2: So I've got a, in my last chapter of my book, um, I have a section about drones uh, because, yes, there are some interesting questions about it. Um, some of the questions about drones are not very novel. Any tool in warfare um, faces the same kind of moral criteria. You need to use them with proper discrimination and proportionality. Uh, don't murder civilians, kill only soldiers, and be proportionate in your response. Don't drop a nuclear bomb to take out a sniper. You know, this is mm-hmm. true for drones. It's true for anything else. What's really unique about drones is that they seem to lower the cost of warfare, which may, which makes it far more attractive. And it makes it very tempting to not use. uh, So there's another principle of of just war that says um, war ought to be a last resort. You only ought to kill people as a last resort once you've exhausted other alternatives. Uh, It's hard to do that when you got such a cheap, easy tool like drones. Drones can become the first resort or the third or the fourth instead of the last resort. And I really worry if you make war so cheap and easy, you will increase the frequency of, of its use. Now, some thinkers like Michael Walzer has suggested we need another category of, um, again, a sort of a, ju- he wants a lower, he wants a different category for, the, for a lower threshold of the use of force, like drones, that is easier to use, right? So let's loosen up the moral criteria where you can do something like drop a drone bomb uh, and you don't have to go through the full moral justification for all for out war. And I really disagree with that. I think that the moral uh, criteria for taking human life ought to be the same, whether you're taking human life with a drone bomb, whether you're taking human life with a nuclear bomb, whether you're taking human life with a a judicial execution uh, or or some other act of political violence. I think there ought to be a unified body of Christian ethics here that deals with all acts of lethal violence. So So I want to hold drone bombing up to the same high standard of any other act of war, is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, it seems like maybe the farther away you get from like hand to hand combat, you know, the easier it is to maybe cut corners and say, oh, maybe we just we need to lower the threshold for for this. So I, I do see your point there on it seems kind of dangerous, <clears throat> dangerous that we can, you know, come up with a different set of criteria uh, for drones than for everything else. Jordan, were you about to say something?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking overall with the overall paradigm for what counts as a just war. Uh, would something like the American Revolution count as a just war?
2: Yeah, so th- you're getting into the very thorny issue of uh, the right of revolt, uh, the right of rebellion, um, and uh, and sort of resistance to oppression and tyranny. And this is actually a very major theme in my book because I, I really wrestled with it quite a lot. It's a, it's a, it's actually it's the same question um, as the question of humanitarian intervention because the the root issue here is sovereignty. When is it appropriate? When is it permissible to um, override sovereignty? I just read to you Romans 13, mm-hmm. obey the authorities. And, uh, and, and Paul was writing about that about the Roman Empire. <laughs> this, is the, this is the government that executed Jesus and that executed Paul and that executed most of the apostles. So is it ever permissible to, for rebels to overthrow a government or for uh, other, other nations, other kingdoms to overthrow a government? That's the, really the key question here when, if ever, is it okay uh, to fight against uh, the ruler, whether from the inside, from the bottom up, or from the outside, from other other principalities. Um, and I think that the answer is, the answer I came up with in my book is, um, when the ruler no longer acts as a ruler, but is acting as a, um, a, a, a murderer, right? Or a, a criminal gang, then they no longer enjoy the protection of Romans 13. They're no longer acting as God's ordained ruler, Upholding good and punishing evil. Uh, So so that means, yes, there is a a point past which governments are no longer normally oppressive and they become uh, totalitarian governments uh, that commit genocide or totalitarian enslavement. That is when uh, revolt is justified. It's also when intervention is justified by outside powers. Do you you understand how I'm connecting these two issues here of revolt and intervention? Yeah. Um, So that I think is when you can override sovereignty and when Romans 13 does not apply anymore. Uh, Now, you asked about the American Revolution. That's a tricky case. Uh, um, The best I can, the most charitable I can get towards the colonists, towards we Americans, is that, is when the British Empire garrisoned redcoats in Boston and in New York, uh, right? When When they sent troops and were only ruling by military occupation, they became an enemy of the American people. And that's when it would be justified, I think, possibly for the Americans to, re- to resist. They weren't; It wasn't an act of genocide, but it was pretty close to enslavement for them to be ruling through military rule, if that makes sense. Um, that means for me, the revolution becomes justified actually pretty pretty late in the process. It was like 1775 or something like that, uh, rather than earlier on. You know, there were some American radicals that wanted to revolt earlier in, in, in 1768, 1770, 1772. And I think that's probably too early in the timeline. It's only when you get very, very close to the actual outbreak of war that, it, to my mind, it maybe becomes justified.
0: That's interesting. And Brandon, you go. I guess. I guess I'm curious because you mentioned this idea of, or I guess this phrasing where these governments become kind of like gangs of criminals, and that reminds me of of Augustine. I don't know if he uses that exact language, but I think in the City of God, um, he does talk. Along those lines, doesn't he? Which seems like a decent segue to thinking through who are the theologians uh, and I guess philosophers who have affirmed or denied uh, just war and what the, the, the key players in this whole debate are.
2: Yeah. Uh so you're referring to book 4 of The City of God where he says famously um take away justice and what are kingdoms but bands of robbers and thieves. Right? The only thing that distinguishes a a king a, a kingship or a um, kingdom from a gang of robbers is that the king claims to be using his violence for the common good. And if he's not doing that anymore, he's just a criminal and a murderer. Uh and and social scientists of later on there's a famous book um by Charles Tilly that says, uh, um, the state made war, the war makes state, right? It's the same idea that uh, kings are stationary bandits, that they just sit there and they do the same thing that criminals do, except criminals are on the run and don't even claim to be doing it for a public benefit. Um, so Augustine is very clear-eyed on his kind of cynicism, although he holds out the possibility that some earthly governments can approach a version of justice that is defensible. So you ask the question, uh, you know, in the theological argument, who supports the idea of just war and who opposes it? So um, for the first three centuries, when Christianity was a persecuted illegal religion, most Christians, you know, there were very few Christians in government or the army. And so there was essentially no uh, Christian sort of just war theologians. Um, The pagans had come up with this idea. Cicero, uh, I actually include him in my book. uh, Cicero includes some very interesting reflections on justice and war in his reflections on the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic. Aristotle has a few scattered comments here and there, Uh, but it's not until Ambrose that you get the first uh, Christian reflection on the possibility of the just use of force. And then Augustine really starts to flesh that out, not in a systematic way, as Augustine is never systematic. He's just all over the place uh, with his sermons and his letters and his books. Um, And the one maddening thing about Augustine is that he never really defines what a just cause is, except insofar as he says, It is the right response to an injury received. An injury received. It's a very vague phrase. And then later on, he talks about the the tranquility of order. Um, You have to fast forward uh, a thousand years. You get to Aquinas. Aquinas picks it up, and he starts talking a little bit more about uh, what just war is. He includes those categories. He starts the checklist. And then after that, it's in the scholastic period. We're talking about Francisco Vittoria, uh, Francisco Suarez uh, on the Catholic side. you got a Protestant guy named Alberico Gentili, And, uh, and then famously Hugo Grotius, who is a Protestant, he's a, he's a Dutch Protestant who start to really put meat on those bones. And they, and they write thousands of pages on these very questions that we've been talking about on the right of revolt, the right of intervention, because they're writing when there's two big questions, um, in the world. One is what do you do with the new world, with the native Americans? The Europeans are encountering the native Americans for the first time. What rules apply to our interaction with them? Are, are we justified in just conquering them? There was actually some people who said yes, but it was Vitorian Suarez who actually said no. It was remarkable in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries to take an unpopular position and say, no, we Europeans do not have a natural right to conquer and rule these, as they said, savage people. Right? Um, they were racist, but they, they did not justify the imperial conquest. The other big question of the day was the, the Protestant Reformation. You know when Christendom fractured, when there was no longer religious uniformity across Europe, uh, and the and the Europe was split between Protestant and Catholic powers, that was the high watermark of holy war thinking. Holy war thinking is another version of realism that says there's no we don't even need to, need to justify using force. We're just going to kill everybody who's not like us, right? Uh, we're, we're fighting for the true faith. We're fighting for God, and so we're going to kill all the Catholics or all the Catholics say so we're going to kill all the Protestants, right? So that was the zenith of holy war thinking, and it was just war thinkers like Gentili and Grotius and Suarez and, and um, Vittoria, who actually said war for religion is not justified. And again, it was kind of daring for them to say so. A lot of thinkers had said war for religion was a, was was justified. And it was a handful who said, no, actually, this, uh, this is not what God wants. It's not in the Bible. God does not commission us to enforce right worship of himself. Uh, he actually enforced, he, he empowers the church to do that, not the state. And so the state should not use its lethal coercion to enforce right worship of himself. Uh, it's a key distinction between church and state, between the two keys, the two kingdoms, the two swords, the two ages, uh, however you want to phrase it. Uh, the church uh, should not, you know, in other words, the Bible does not give a commission to a theocracy uh, or to what we would call a C-0 papist regime where church and state operate together to enforce one one regime. Um, and so the, ju- the just war kind of... Uh, idea really crystallized then during the wars of religion to say, we ought to stop doing this. We ought to stop killing each other over matters of theology. Uh, And it it took 150 years for the wars of religion to peter out um, and for just war, for the idea of it to really kind of be vindicated. Um, But then there's there's a whole other chapter of the story there, but I don't want to keep on uh, talking too much. So yeah. So uh, I think just war came to its fruition through the wars of religion and the theologians writing then.
0: Uh, that's interesting to me.
1: So I, just out of curiosity, like denominationally and, you know, different Christian traditions, would you say that there are some traditions that are more inclined to pacifism and some maybe more? I mean, I know this is not easy to draw lines like this because there's going to be exceptions and there's going to be people in every denomination and tradition that affirms one or the other. But do, do you find that pacifism is, is maybe more prevalent in one tradition over another?
2: So pacifism um, was uh, was the defining trait of the, um, the Anabaptist movement in the 16th century, uh, which gave birth to the Mennonites and the Amish uh, in the United States, um, and uh, is today best represented in the writings of uh, Stanley Hauerwas and John Howard Yoder. So if you're looking for the pacifist uh, argument today, read those books. The, uh, but again, it's a minority strand. So most of the rest of the denominations don't hold to pacifism, Um, at least not theological pacifism. There's another strand of pacifism. It's kind of a de facto or functional pacifism that says modern war is so destructive it can no longer be fought justly. You'll find that argument in the mainline, in the Episcopalians and a lot of Methodist churches, uh, maybe some mainline Lutheran denominations will hold to that kind of functional pacifism where they no longer think that modern war with modern weaponry could, could ever be just. Some Catholics have approached that position uh, you look at the Bishop's letter in 1983, they essentially said that. Um, the one interesting part of the story is the record of uh, Baptists. As you may know, Baptists were instrumental in highlighting the importance of religious freedom uh, and kind of giving birth to that idea for the world. Uh, you know, we, we invented religious freedom. You know, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, there's an interesting connection here between religious freedom and just war. I just told you that just war thinkers... Uh, came to their own when they argued that you may not fight a war to defend the true faith. That's essentially an argument for religious freedom, for saying that there will be schismatics and heretics and infidels, and and we have to live and let live. We have to tolerate uh, wrong belief. That's the argument for religious freedom. So I think that just war and the Baptist denomination really have a natural fit because of the baptist historic emphasis on religious freedom and you know there's other reasons for that the Baptist were mm-hmm. persecuted by the catholics and the congregationalists and the episcopalians and the, you know everyone persecuted the baptists so the baptist heritage and religious freedom makes it a natural fit for for just war
1: you better say something jordan sorry
0: oh you go ahead i'm looking up the baptist faith and message cuz i'm i'm it seems like there's a, a statement there on war in it isn't there yeah peace and war um, so it says it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness, in accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ. They should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teaching in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the prince of peace. So that's interesting in that it it doesn't seem like it outright says you can't have a just war, but it doesn't really give you any criteria for it if there is such a thing.
2: So this this kind of gets at the next chapter of the story that I alluded to earlier. I talked about how the just war tradition came to fruition in, in the wars of religion. We're talking about the 17th century here. But the just war heritage was essentially lost for about two centuries after that. Because of the sort of great secularization that um, overtook uh, the early modern world, after the wars of religion, you talk about the Age of Enlightenment, Thomas Hobbes, and, and others, all of that, that the theological edifice of Christendom just kind of went away, you know, people stopped believing in it. And so the just war framework also underwent radical change. Many thinkers started, kept using the same words. I mentioned Samuel Pufendorf before, Emerita uh, uh, Vettel, a Swiss jurist is another one, Christian von Wolff, they're all in my book. Um, they continued to use the same language, but their understanding of what justice meant changed pretty radically. Their understanding of sovereignty changed pretty radically. Their understanding of natural law changed quite a lot. And so for them, just war shrank and it became only a matter of territorial defense. So today, when you ask what's a just war, most people will say, well, self-defense, and that's it. That's precisely because of the changes that happened in the 17th and 18th century, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, a just war shrank from vindicating ideals of justice and order all the way down to territorial defense. That became the only legitimate cause to, to wage a war. And that's actually enshrined in quite a lot of international law today, I think, regrettably. Um and so many denominations have lost, have forgotten their earlier theological heritage. You just mentioned how the Baptist statement of faith seems not to reflect what I argued was the kind of historic um, heritage there of the just war theological tradition, and I'm not surprised by that. I think a lot of religious traditions have forgotten the older uh, Augustinian just war heritage, and they're they're taking the secular understanding of war um for as as the default without remembering the older heritage does that make sense
1: it does yeah i mean i feel like the modern church does that with a lot of things not they just, do, just yeah. war. work but
2: you're absolutely right that we do um and what i've done in my book is try to trace that story with attention to one particular issue warfare but you could tell the same story of how we forget our theological heritage and adopt modern secular assumptions on a whole range of things on anthropology on government uh, generally on um you name it, uh, on on the nature of the person, the nature of the family, the nature of civil society. Uh, again and again and again, we have forgotten our, our heritage.
0: Yeah, and I'm looking at an older Baptist confession the 1689, and it seems very straightforward with classic just war theory, you know, God's ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people for his own glory and public good. And to that end, he hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. And so it does seem odd that that completely, pretty much disappears in modern
2: uh, confessions or statements of faith. Now, now the good news is there's been a pretty conscious effort by some thinkers to resurrect uh, just war thinking Um, since World War II. You know, World War II is a great indictment of uh, what I call the Westphalian tradition of thinking, um, because if war is only about territorial defense, it it has nothing to say about the Holocaust, right? (laughs) I mean, when the Holocaust happens and your moral framework has no answer to it, then it kind of delegitimizes your framework. So since World War II, uh, some people, uh, Paul Ramsey is a Protestant theologian, mid-20th century, who tries to resurrect just war thinking, And today, I'd point to uh, Nigel Bigger, uh, James Turner Johnson, Eric Patterson, um, uh, Gene Elshane, to uh, to some extent, are other thinkers who are trying to work, uh, trying to recover and remember that older heritage, Um, but but not, but also translate it in today's terms. So I, when I talked about what is a just war, I talked about ordered liberty, right? That's not language that Augustine used. That's my effort to take an Augustinian approach and apply it to today, and translate it into an idiom that it could be used in a modern pluralistic polity. All right, the Bible doesn't talk about ordered liberty. I think you can find it there, but it, it, that's not the language that the Bible uses. But I do think it's, I, I take biblical inspiration for saying that ordered liberty ought to be principles we Christians defend.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: So you just, you just gave us a list of names. Do you have any... Um... Recommended resources for us, maybe a specific book or article, and you can also take this time to, you know, tell us anything that you'd like us to know about your upcoming book as well. But just so the listeners have a place to go to um, if they want to learn more about this,
2: yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so, uh, my book again is uh, entitled Just War and Ordered Liberty, and it will be out by Cambridge University Press uh, in about a year. It's not available for pre-order yet, sadly. Otherwise, I'd uh, I'd hawk the link, um, but uh, you know, follow me on Twitter, Paulie Demiller, too, and I'll, I'll tweet out the link as soon as it's available. Um, some of the other good uh, books that have been out in recent years, Nigel Bigger wrote a book called in defense of war in defense of war uh, with British spelling. He's a, he's a Brit. So it's in defense with a C in defense of war. Um, Eric Patterson, uh, he's an American and uh, he's got a number of books on just war out over the past few years. The most recent one is called um, uh, I think it's called, um, is it called America's just wars? Uh, I want to get the title right. Um, uh, just american wars by eric patterson just american wars that's his most recent uh book that he just came out about a year ago he's got a couple other ones out um uh one called at war's end which really emphasizes that question i talked about about a war about uh, justice after war what do you how do you build justice after a conflict so at war's end is another good one by eric patterson um James Turner Johnson is kind of the dean of this stuff. He's he's written 15, 20 books. And uh, I, where to begin? I mean, begin at the beginning and read them all. <laughs> uh, but I, those are a couple of uh, books uh, that I could recommend.
0: Fantastic. And and before we wrap up, I do want in, in your opinion, what are the primary benefits uh, of sticking with the just war theory? I think you've mentioned several of them, but I mean, maybe systematize them in one, two, three type of key things. And then what are... Are there potential costs that we give up? Um, I know you mentioned people who are pacifists want to say, well, look at the message of Jesus where you turn the other cheek and love your enemy. Is is that the primary cost that we have to, um, I guess, I don't know if it's reinterpret or just use other texts to soften what he means that less than not exactly universalize it in, in a particular way. I'm not sure if that's the primary cost that we have to eat, if we're going to go with
2: a just yeah. war theory or for other ones. Well, so to be very clear, I don't think that, um, the exercise of the sword in Romans 13 conflicts with Jesus's command to love our enemies. Yeah, uh, this is actually the heart of the Christian case for just war is that war itself, the act of coercion is itself an act of love, mm-hmm. uh, for our neighbors who are being attacked for our enemies who are sinning through their attack and for ourselves to defend ourselves and our, our, our families and our countries. Uh, we are actually uh, fulfilling our duty to love others when we defend um, the common good, when we defend order, justice, and peace for everyone, ourselves, our neighbors, and our enemies alike. That's the really important part about just war is understanding it's a requirement of love for our enemies. Uh, we want to spread the blessings of liberty and justice and peace to them as, as much as to us. So I do think that there's a fundamental consistency there, and I don't think we have to give up the idea of loving others if we accept just war. Um, your question was, uh, what you know, what are the best arguments, what are the features of it, and the, costs, uh, the, the cost of it? Well, I, I, th- I, I hope the best benefit is that it's biblically faithful. Uh, I, I think it takes root. It is sort of inspired by biblical teaching about the nature of government and about love for neighbors and enemies. Um, it is also... Uh, at least in the version I've tried to reformulate in my book, um, consistent with our modern pluralistic polities. You know, we we as Christians ought to be careful in how we apply our biblical principles to actual government policy today, because we're not theocrats, and we need to do a bit of translation there. It's a jagged line, right, as Jonathan Lehman says. And so I've tried to take just war and do the jagged line, do the translation, so that it can actually be used in our in our democratic polity, when there are non-Christians and there's people who disagree with us, what is a consensus we can agree to on the use of force? And I hope that just war can be that consensus. I hope the vindication of ordered liberty is the right thing to aim at when we have to reach for the instrument of war. Uh, so that's, I think, the, the benefit. It's both biblically faithful and it's useful, it's usable in today's uh, political situation. Um, is there a cost to it? I'd say... Just war, as I understand it, offers perhaps broader grounds for war than people might. They might be surprised at how how many just causes there are. But at the same time, I hope they're also surprised at what a weighty responsibility it, it carries for uh, for building justice and peace in the aftermath. So when I look at war, I'm not just looking at the triggering cause. I'm also looking at what you're going to do through and after war to build justice and peace. And I think the responsibilities for building justice and peace are very high. And in my book, I look at Iraq, I look at Afghanistan, I look at Syria, I look at North Korea, and I conclude basically that none of them are just, right? Because we've screwed up so much. Uh, n- not unjust necessarily in their initiation, but in how badly we've handled them. Um, and so the, the cost of using just war is accepting the very high responsibilities. That come with uh, with doing war very carefully and living up to a very high standard of sort of post war reconstruction.
0: That's really helpful. And I think enlightening on the topic. So that's that's great stuff. Brandon, did you have anything else you wanted to ask?
1: No, I didn't. But I did want to thank you. That was very informative. I learned a lot there just in really you know 30, 40 minutes.
2: Uh, thank you for having me on the show uh, I, I have just finished you know with uh, like the last round of editing on the book so it's fresh in my mind and you guys are essentially the first, this is the first book talk I've given <laughs> uh, first or second time I've actually like sort of lectured on the new book so thank you for being uh, guinea pigs for me I really enjoyed it and I hope a chance to I hope I have a chance to talk about this a lot more in the coming years as the, as the book comes out.
0: Yeah, and we definitely recommend all of our listeners to earmark the, the book and go grab it as soon as it comes out. Uh, we'll obviously promote it when it comes out um, and tell everybody to go follow you on Twitter or wherever else you want us to follow you. Um, for those who have been listening, though, you have been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists, and we thank you for tuning in.